For the first few episodes of season two, we're talking about certain feelings that, for lack of a better word, feel indicative of our current cultural moment. These are feelings that, though we may not understand or be able to trace them, we use to describe the world around us. They, again, for lack of a better word, feel like the best way to make sense of things. What we see online, of what we see in our families, or even of what we experience in our own lives. And what we're doing isn't novel or new. Lots of people have noticed these feelings. You can hear journalists talking about it, politicians talking about it. But the question that we're trying to ask, and more importantly, the question we're trying to answer is why? Why does the world feel this way? And to answer that question, people all over are throwing around lots of ideas. We talk about hate or resentment, fear, and tribalism. And those are helpful, but they're really actually just more feelings. Just different ways to describe how we feel about the world. And it helps us navigate and make sense, but it does not totally explain it. And so still underneath all of those feelings is the question, why? Why do we feel this way? What has happened or is happening around us to make the world feel this way? And there were people in this town that went through divorces because of it, that lost their homes because of it. You couldn't sell a house in this town for any kind of money. And there's a class, and they talk about equity, diversity, um, inclusivity, white privilege, systemic racism, any of that. You take your children out of the class. They're not being educated, they're being indoctrinated. The first two bombings, uh, I mean, in my opinion, they targeted uh, African Americans. We're very clear about that. A former leader of the American Nazi Party is running for Congress in Illinois. As the only Republican on the ticket, it looks like he is about to win the primary next month. His name is Arthur Jones. He has never disavowed his Nazi views. Here's what Jones said at a rally in Kentucky. The white majority are fed up with all of these lying, cheating, thieving, warmongering, child molesting, political pimps and whores. On Sunday, Vladimir Putin won an election rigged to prop up a dangerous strongman who is threatening Western democracy. That requires a strong response. So Donald Trump called him up to say, attaboy. You're listening to The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day and the Gospel Collective in Salt Lake City, Utah. The People's Theology is a podcast about theology and culture, trying to explore those issues like it matters, because they do. In our last episode, the first episode of season two, we looked at the feelings of fear and anger. And today, we're going to continue doing that. Except we're not going to be exploring feelings 
so much as we are going to be setting the groundwork to explore feelings. And what I mean by that is that before we can understand any more about our world, what I want to do is take a few moments to understand how we got to now. To unpack the story and the history of our present moment so that maybe we can have some context for why things are the way they are, for why feelings are the way they are, for why tension is the way that it is. And so in this episode, we're going to break it up into two small acts, you could say, and look at the story of now, the history of our present. There's this Canadian philosopher that I've mentioned a few times in the show named Charles Taylor. And he spent a lot of his career writing a history of the present or a story of the now, trying to answer why our world is the way that it is by tracing and tracking backwards, sort of putting the pieces together so that we can see where our time came from. And specifically, so that we can understand what he calls the malaise of modernity. Which is basically a much more sophisticated way of saying the feelings of modernity. There are these feelings that he says... By that I mean features of our contemporary culture that people feel very, very worried about. And so the question is, where do these things that worry us, where do these things that produce the feelings come from? Which is a tricky question. Because the things that we're worried about or the things that produce these feelings... They're connected to our world. Even as they seem to flow from the development of our civilization. And that's a hard question to answer because you're basically trying to say when and what happened in the past to make the past the present. When did the old order of things change so that the new might begin? When did we enter a modern world? And how do you even answer that question in the first place? Like, what moment do you look at? Or what events do you look at? Or is the question a philosophical one, a technological one, a political one, an economic one? Is it a question about recent history or past history? How do you answer the question? People are very worried about developments that have taken place in the last 10 years. Or sometimes the worry is about very deep-lying features that have been coming about over three centuries. But there is this widespread sense of malaise around a number of features of modern society. So the questions are, what are the features and where do those features come from? What leads to their development? And Taylor says that if we want to understand the changes of the world, if we want to understand these features of malaise, then there are certain moments in history that are helpful to look at. Not because they necessarily cause all the changes of the world, but because they are important moments representing the changes of the world. They contribute to it, but more than anything else, they're endemic of what's happening. And above all of these moments, the ones that Taylor is most concerned with, the one that he thinks is maybe most important for shaping our modern world, is what he calls reform movements. Now, if you think back to your history class, there's probably two big reform movements that you can think of. There's the Renaissance, and there is the Protestant Reformation. 
Taylor says that both of these moments come from a similar kind of tension or a dissatisfaction with the equilibrium of the day. People were growing tired of a system that did not work for them, a two-tiered system that separated, categorized, and divided the world into hierarchies. It separated the powerful from the weak, the religious, the holy, and the sacred from the secular and the domestic, the rich from the poor, the royalty from the unwashed masses, the bourgeoisie from the proletariat. That was an unstable equilibrium. And reform movements begin to emerge out of that in the late medieval era and then into the modern one. What these reform movements do is start to question the way things are in the world. The Protestant Reformation challenges religious institutions, the unassailable power of the Pope, the position of the laity, what it looks like for people like you and me to be holy, and what it looks like for us to engage with God on our own. And the Renaissance questions previous politics, old science, notions of the world that conveniently upheld the existing structure. And at the heart of all of these movements is this conviction that we can reform the world. For the Protestants during the Reformation, they believe that God is actually doing something in the world to redeem and sanctify it through human effort. That they've actually been called to participate in something, invited in to change the world. That leads to two simple but totally profound beliefs. The way the Protestants articulate it is this. They say, first, we are a priesthood of all believers. That means there is no special tier for religious leaders or religious authorities. Everyone has access. Everyone has a a place at the table. And so you see figures like Martin Luther, they translate the Bible into a common German. They bring a bunch of public schools to teach commoners how to read so that everyone can throw off the shackles of religious authority, make sense of their faith on their own, and live that faith out in a way that is just as important as it is for religious leaders and authorities. And the second massive but simple idea is that there is no space more important than another. There is no place in life, there's no place of authority, there is no physical place more important than another. So domestic life is just as important as papal life. Farm life is just as important as royal life. And your farm or your home, that is too just as important as a castle or a cathedral. Now, this begins to slowly level things, to level out people and places. You and your home are as important as cathedral. No religious leader or authority should dictate to you how you live your life and follow God. And as this happens, you see some amazing shifts in the world. And you start to see arguably the most rapid cultural change the world 
has ever seen take place, the very things that lead to the development of our modern society. Now, what may have begun as a movement motivated by its religious convictions and religious foundations, well, some other things begin to happen that question those religious convictions and foundations. And those questions, those movements, they begin to separate and change the way we see the world. And it's not hard to see how that would happen, nor is it bad that it does happen. Right? The more that we discover, the more that we build, the more that our technology and our scientific understanding advances, the less the world looks like a mysterious, superstitious, and spiritual place. And instead of seeing the world as something that is mysterious, we begin to see the world as a place governed by natural laws and principles. And this is a good thought, a good place to go, because it means that the world is a place that we can explore, that we can build in, that we can use the gifts of being a priesthood of all believers and advance its causes. Right? And that is where these thoughts originally come from, inside the church. And as those ideas lead to some amazing discoveries, well, they also begin to lead to some interesting questions and maybe even some interesting tensions that we feel like we have to resolve. And the resolution of that tension, the ways that we have attempted to do that, well, I think that's led to some interesting places. At the end of the Middle Ages, there was a guy named William Ockham. And if you've ever heard of Ockham's Razor, it's the same Ockham. And he was a Christian and a philosopher, and he starts to wrestle with the natural laws and the place of God in the universe. And his question is really this, if God is transcendent, if God is sovereign, if God is the creator of the universe, then he must be outside of those natural laws. He cannot be subject to the laws of reality. And so he therefore must kind of like live outside of them. And that movement It's pretty simple today. It feels pretty normal today. But it is maybe one of the first big moments in history where a theologian or a philosopher separates the created order from the creator and says that there is some divide between those things, some divide between our realm and him. Now, that line of thinking continues, and you come to a little bit later, and you meet a theologian named Thomas Aquinas. And to make sense of the difference between God and the natural world, he uses an analogy of a house with two levels. And it's this house that kind of describes the relationship of God to the world. And and, and this is a crude oversimplification, but the physical and material slash natural world was sort of the downstairs for Aquinas. And the top stairs was the metaphysical or the spiritual world. And the thing that made this analogy interesting is that the real question is, how do you get from the downstairs to the upstairs? Are there stairs that you can use? Are there some kind of transportation device? Can you use reason or rationale or faith to get from one to the next? And for Aquinas, what he says is there's actually limits to rational, reasonable thinking. And that it's faith that begins to lead us from the material, 
to the immaterial. And like Occam, what you have is a furthering of the divide between the relationship of the creator to creation. There is a divide in how you engage with him and how you interact with him and what relationship he might have with the world. If you go back, even before the time of Occam, you could rationalize your way to the creator. You could get to him and interact with him through rational thinking because the whole world had this enchantedness to it. Everything was a bit more, you could say spiritual, but I think that undermines what what the actual worldview is. It is just, to use Charles Taylor's language, more porous, meaning more open to the reality that we don't understand everything around us. But then as we continue to move through the Enlightenment, that belief begins to get limited and cut down. And so we can understand the world around us and our relationship with God further and further separated. And so you have natural laws in one place and faith in another place. You have the material world in one place, and you have the transcendent and immaterial world in another place, and we begin to separate those spheres from each other. In my mind, I pictured is a Venn diagram that was once overlapping, and that was our view of the world. And As history moves on, we separate the two circles further and further and further away from each other until there are two separate circles with no overlap at all. And those Venn diagram circles, they get separated so far away from each other. They drift further and further until we have no connection at all. And we tell we come to a rational world, a Descartes rational world that exists enclosed and independent of God altogether. Now, on the one hand, there is something really good about this change, about the disenchantment of the world. As we do this, as we change the way that we see the world, then all of a sudden, the issues are not related to ghosts or demons. Mental illness isn't connected to possession. And we begin to think about the problems we face in terms of natural resources and natural responses. So there's medical problems and biological fixes. And that's a good and right change because it opens up the possibilities and solutions to the things that ail us. But Charles Taylor says there's another reality at play in the disenchantment of the world. It's not just the evacuation of ghosts. It is also the changing location of meaning. What does that mean? Well, that means uh that meaning itself is not something inherent in an object or inherent in physical creation. Instead, it is something that we either perceive in our minds, or to use Kantian language, that we actually impose from our minds onto the object. So things don't have their own kind of essence or their own intention. We give it to them. That means simply the world is not a place of inherent meaning, but a place that we have to discover, 
devise, and even impose meaning onto. And it's not a world that is inherently enchanted or inherently significant, but again, one that we have to impose significance onto. And that changes it. That changes the location of identity into our own minds as opposed to in the thing itself. It changes our role in the world. Now we have the responsibility of creating that and figuring it out. And very significantly, and we'll talk about this more later, it changes our very being, the way that we think about ourselves. Instead of being bodies who engage in a world that can affect and change and influence and engage with our bodies, we become primarily thinking beings. And our identity and our significance and what makes us us becomes our mind. And so we're rational beings who are formed by our mind, who engage the world by our mind and not our bodies. We are buffered selves as opposed to porous selves, insulated, interior, as opposed to exterior and embodied. If you were to boil down everything that we have talked about into two simple ideas, I think that you could say with confidence that at the foundation of modernity, that in fact the very story of modernity itself is shaped by these two ideas that form it, that are formed in it, and that are part and parcel of the entire journey, and it is this. First, humanism. That humans are capable of achieving greater and greater things through reason, rationale, ability, and technology. That we can overcome any problem. And second, that we can do that in a world evacuated of God. Those two ideas become what's sometimes referred to as the wager of modernity. That we, without God, can overcome the most significant problems of the world and make something of it. That we can build, that we can create, that we can overcome any odds. And in fact, that we have to. That that is our story, that that is maybe the most quintessential part of who we are. So we have to do those things. We are here to advance, here to develop, here to progress forward. But now take that. Take that wager and press it and stretch it. Run it through world history, the 30-year war, the Revolutionary War, the French Revolution, the American Civil War, World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, Cold War, Korean War, Vietnam War, the globalization of the world economy, Iraq, Y2K, 9-11, Afghanistan, Iraq, financial crisis of 2008, mass shootings, and terrorism, 30-year war, the Revolutionary War, the French Revolution, the American Civil War, World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, Cold War, Korean War, Vietnam War, the globalization of the world economy, Y2K, 9-11, just to name a few. What happens to a belief rooted in human ability that faces the tragedy, destruction, and uncertainty of human ability? Sometimes you'll hear the 20th and 21st century described as post-modernity. That we live post all of these things, in the aftermath of all of these things. And in many ways, that is true. But I, I had a professor 
who described our world less as a post-modern world and more as an unraveling modern world. Where those beliefs and those ideals and those institutions, they have pushed their limit. They have been revealed in tragedy and in uncertainty and now are beginning to come apart, to unravel. Taylor wonders if we've just made the bet too many times. It's paid out. Dividends. The good and right about the world we live in exists because of that wager. But have we taken a serious account of everything? Have we checked the ledger? Do we understand how else that wager has formed the world? That is the world that we live in. One where an idea or a set of ideas and a dream were achieved over and over and over again, but then pushed and pushed until some of the benefits of that dream and idea might have transformed into something else. Now, what is that something else? What is that other set of negative consequences? Well, that's what we'll explore in our next episode. How that story, the story of our present, actually informs our now. Before we end, though, there's just two questions that I want to posit. Questions that I think are informed by this conversation. And the first is this. Can you identify both the good and the bad? of that wager, both the beautiful, the helpful, but also the negative consequences. And number two, maybe more personally, can you identify where the wager influences you, where you look at problems and concerns and issues and think we should solve this? How does that wager shape the way we engage in relationships? How does that wager engage in the way we think about problems? How does that wager change the way we think about what it means to be the church? And maybe it's helpful to think about that in a term of a second set of questions. Which is, do I put too much hope in solutionism? Too much hope in technology? Too much hope in my or the people around me's ability to solve problems? Does my desire to solve all problems stop me from being present to the situation I'm in or to the people I'm with? See, that too is the wager of modernity, that we have a solution to all problems, some fix to all situations. But do we? Are we supposed to? Is that really how the world works? And that makes me think of a final question, which is, is this the way the world has to be? Do we have to see our own lives and the lives of others through this story? It's sort of like a pair of glasses, and we don't know that we're wearing it, and so we don't even know how to take them off because we were basically born wearing them. 
But what if this story isn't actually true, or at least not wholly true? What if it doesn't have to define our world or the way we see ourselves? What if it doesn't have to answer all of our questions? What if we have put ourselves, the world, and even God in a box of modernity's construction and called it truth without ever second-guessing it? Thank you for listening to The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day and the Gospel Collective in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information about The People's Theology or about the church, check out our website at www.missioslc.com. And if you'd like to be a part of the show, if you'd like to have your questions influence what we talk about, or you have suggestions or even just nice things to say, you can email us at podcast at missiodayslc.com. And if you would... Would you go to wherever it is that you listen to podcasts, subscribe, and review. Every review and subscription, it helps more people find the show and find what we're talking about, which is super helpful. So if you would, yeah, subscribe and review and share the episode with someone that you think would be interested in these conversations. And then check back next time for part three in our conversation about why the world feels the way that it does.